Hey, Daniel. How's it going? Hey, Melissa. It's going pretty good. How are you? I'm good. Um, You're one of the show's producers, and I understand that you want to talk to me about something. Yes. I want to talk to you about the Zero Carbon Sports Team. Oh, my gosh. I love the Zero Carbon Sports Team. That was, what, um, episode two? Like, early Uh, days of the show. Episode two. That's right. It is absolutely one of my favorite episodes, because this is this one where you explain this idea, uh, the Zero Carbon team idea and it's just totally stuck with me ever since you know basically like that solar wind nuclear and all these sources of electricity they work together like a sports team that's exactly right i mean they are a team right so you've got your star players you got your strikers like wind and solar and they generate that cheap zero carbon electricity but when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing you need your midfield and your defenders so your energy storage things like batteries and your firm dispatchable power so nuclear hydro maybe some fossil fuels with carbon capture just things that are around 24/7 and they all work together they are a team right so i want to talk to you about one player in particular that i've been learning about one particular source of electricity and i would kind of call it an underdog Ooh, tell me more. What technology are we talking about? Well, so this is one source of power that people don't expect much of. They kind of forget about it. I'm talking about geothermal energy. This is, of course, where you drill down into the earth to find underground steam to drive turbines and generate electricity. Okay, so here's the thing about geothermal. You're right, it doesn't get nearly as much attention as wind and solar. But once you build it, it works pretty well. And it's on all the time. So it's those defenders, those 24-7, 365 plants that I was talking about. Those members of the team that are really, really important. And they can run all the time without carbon emissions, which is exactly the kind of support that wind, solar, and batteries need to keep the power on, to keep it reliable and affordable. Exactly. So this is why I was super excited about geothermal. We're not going to run out of the Earth's heat for like thousands of years. And when I first started looking into it, I thought to myself, this energy is kind of magic. If you can drill and you can find heat, boom, you have energy. So it is kind of magical, but I am going to zoom in on one thing you said, which is that you have to find the heat. And there's a lot of stuff you need to do to be able to find the heat. And then once you find it, you have to be able to tap into it and actually use it. This is exactly what I wanted to talk to you about. You study energy for a living, and I want to try to figure out what role geothermal could play on that zero carbon sports team. I've been wanting to understand what it does well and also what's holding it back. So I talked to some people who work in geothermal in a country that's built its geothermal industry from scratch. We started with failure. So we drilled a well, unproductive. Second well, unproductive. But the third well actually was very powerful and produced enough. And this is still online now. That's about almost 40 years later. Wait, are we talking about Kenya right now? This sounds like Kenya. This, we are talking about Kenya. And it is this totally incredible success story where today it generates nearly half of its electricity from geothermal. I also talked to someone who thinks that we could actually expand geothermal around the world. This is someone who imagines a future for geothermal where it also helps oil and gas workers transition to the net zero economy. We're building geothermal power plants. We're producing green electrons. We're also producing jobs for oil and gas workers. What I was thinking is that I'll share with you what I learned from my research and then see what you think about it. 
And in particular, the questions I'm thinking about are, what role will Geothermal play on that Zero Carbon Sports team? Is it a solid sort of supporting player, useful in like a few niche situations? Or could it become a more of a star player on par with solar and wind? Sounds fun. Let's do it. Let's dig in. No pun intended. (laughs) This is The Big Switch, a show about how to rebuild the energy systems that are all around us. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and I'm the Director of Research at Columbia University's SEPA Center on Global Energy Policy. And I'm Daniel Waldorf. I am a producer for The Big Switch. And today we're going to talk about geothermal energy. And we're going to start with Kenya a country that gets nearly half of its electricity from geothermal, and it's built its geothermal industry from scratch. So the early days of geothermal in Kenya were a bit like the Wild West. Instead of prospectors looking for gold, there were exploration teams looking around Kenya's volcanic Great Rift Valley for underground steam. Back in the 80s, these teams would go many miles out into the wilderness, and there were baboons and hippos and zebras, but apparently the buffaloes were the worst. One of my colleagues, she gave us a story that when he first joined, he went to the field with his bosses and they were chased by buffaloes. This is Dr. Nicholas Marita. He was part of one of the early exploration teams in Kenya. He's now a professor of geophysics at Dedan Kamathi University of Technology, a public university north of Nairobi, where he directs the Geothermal Energy Training and Research Institute. So first, a little bit of history. Back in 1956, the Kenyan government drilled one successful geothermal well in the Great Rift Valley. But the technology was pretty immature, so it took until 1981 before it built its first geothermal plant. But as more and more Kenyans connected to the power grid, the Kenyan government wanted to grow its geothermal capacity. So in the 80s and 90s, it funded teams that went looking for more heat, like Nicholas's team. Nicholas remembers seeing and hearing the first geothermal wells. You could hear the power of the work, you know, steam coming out. They were testing it or something. What did it sound like? Oh, just like, um, you know, the uh, pressure cooker, that kind of sound. Then they opened it fully and you could see the amount of power coming out. And we just had to kind of plug your ears because the sound was just too great. God, I can completely picture it. I mean, when you look at geothermal wells, these are not tiny things. So the sound is like a pressure cooker, but these are massive things that can power entire cities. I know when I was in Iceland over the summer with my students, just going into the facility and showing them this, the size of the pipes coming out of the ground. They were massive. But before I go too far down the rabbit hole and describing what these things look like, I think we should step back a minute and talk about how geothermal and geothermal power plants actually work. I totally agree. So let's pause on Nicholas's story here. The best way I've heard geothermal wells described is that they're like big pockets of steam underground, pockets that can be several kilometers deep. So it's like putting a straw into the ground and extracting uh, that, (laughs) although that's very hot and highly pressurized. This is Dr. Anna Mwangi. She's a geophysicist that works at Kengen, the major utility in Kenya. Like the straw is made of metal. It runs that turbine, and then that turbine is coupled to a generator, and that generator makes for you the electricity. And the electricity is connected directly to the grid. So in modern geothermal plants, you extract the steam to power turbines. 
but you also inject that water back down into the earth to recharge the groundwater. Right. So like there's a few variations on this too that we should just point out. So you can use that steam to spin a turbine, but you can also use that steam to heat up a home or an apartment building or even an entire neighborhood. And we call that district geothermal or district heating with geothermal. And for low temperature applications like heating a home, you can drill some pretty shallow wells. So go down to some pretty shallow depths, maybe a few hundred feet. And you can just use the ambient heat to heat up air instead of water. But for generating electricity, we need to drill much deeper wells because we have to get really high temperatures. Right. You need those high temperatures so that you can get steam to drive the turbines. And to get that steam, you need some key geological ingredients. And these are important because they're not so easy to find. So you need a heat source, which is a magma body that is heating up the system. You need the actual water to be getting through. You need structures like faults and fractures that allow the water to seep through the rock. And you also need a seal, a seal so that um, everything will be held intact. So that when you drill, you can actually get it at high pressure. So you need heat, water, fractures, and a seal. And the easiest place to find these ingredients is typically in volcanic regions. And I think this is a really important point that folks should know. That is that geothermal has historically been limited to only a handful of places where there's volcanic activity near the surface, where you can often see things like volcanoes and vents and geysers and hot springs. And these are places like Kenya, but also the Philippines, some parts of the U.S., and Iceland. And these have historically been the most economical places to drill geothermal wells. But even in those places, it's not so simple as just finding a geyser and drilling down. In most places, you have to use specialized technology and expertise to find the exactly right place to drill. This is where people like Anna and Nicholas come in. And here's Anna to explain. We do x-raying of the earth. You know, you don't necessarily drill it, yes. You do some sort of an x-ray of the earth and it gives you images. So we're, we're talking about metaphorical x-rays here. Like they're not using x-ray machines that doctors use, but Today, there is a bunch of sophisticated gear that they use to detect heat, water, pore space, all those ingredients that you're looking for. So what we do as geologists and geophysicists and geochemists is to go around looking for these places that you can have steam stored. So, and then we advise on where to drill. This is what Nicolas Marita and his team were doing back in the 1980s, looking for steam and x-raying the earth, like Anna said. But the technology wasn't as well developed as it is today. Geothermal exploration and development is, for lack of a better word, is a risk one takes, particularly created risk. And uh, yes, it's true, the technology was not as advanced as now. His team had been scouring the Great Rift Valley, pinpointing places that they thought they could find productive wells. And when they drilled their first successful well, it was a big deal. So that day I remember my first well that was actually uh, drilled and uh, found to be viable. Uh, we went and bought two goats and um, those um, traditional beer dancing in the evening. It was really nice, if I can remember well. Since then, the technology for finding hidden geothermal has gotten a lot better. And Kenya's geothermal industry has drilled many wells since then. But Kenya built only one geothermal plant in 1981, and they didn't build any more for another 20 years. 
Wait, so that's really interesting to me because I know that Kenya in the 80s, you had a small minority of the population that had access to electricity. So it wasn't that they didn't want more electricity. I'm sure the country did. So I'm wondering if this comes down to cost. Did you find out anything about the cost of the plants they were building at that time? Yes. So cost was the problem that I learned about over and over again. I did some background research on this. And the thing is, to generate geothermal energy, you first have to explore. That costs money. Then you have to drill. That costs money. And then you have to finally build a geothermal plant, and that costs money. And so capital is difficult to come by anywhere you are, especially difficult to come by in the global south in a country like Kenya. And Anna talked to me about the exploration piece of this, because even today, it's still really expensive to drill wells. If you go around poking holes, every hole you poke is more than $5 million. Yeah, so you can't afford just to poke a hole. That hole is costing you money in millions of dollars. Yeah, $5 million, that's an expensive mistake if you drill in the wrong place. And this is the thing, the upfront costs. Because once you build geothermal, it's cheap to run. But like some other technologies, it takes a lot to get it to the point where it's actually producing electricity. So you have to have that money upfront on day one to pay for the facility before you get the electricity that comes from it. Right, so this upfront cost problem was one of the biggest factors holding back geothermal in Kenya. But in the 2000s, things actually started to change. After remaining flat for 20 years, Kenya's geothermal capacity increased tenfold from 2003 to 2020. New geothermal plants popped up across the country. Meanwhile, the percentage of Kenyans with access to electricity rose from 15% to 70%, basically across that same time period. This is all according to the International Energy Agency. Wow, I mean, those are some big jumps. So in your research, what did you find out happened? What changed in the early 2000s? Well, it seems like it came down to government action. In 2001, a big drought dried up hydroelectric dams, causing outages across the country. Young people who are now aged about, say, 15 to 20 years, cannot remember the pains of having power rationing. Nicholas here is talking about power rationing, meaning that sections of the grid had to be shut down because it didn't have enough power. Power rationing was happening in the 90s and 2000s. That was very frequent because at that time almost 90% of electricity was coming from hydropower. So when there's drought, the dams go down and uh, there's not enough power to be generated. So these problems had been happening for years, but that big drought in 2001 really put pressure on the government to find a new source of power as soon as possible. But fortunately, since the 80s and 90s, there had already been a bunch of legwork done on geothermal. Teams like Nicholas's had been looking for the best places to drill and build plants. This was exploration funded by the government, the Kenyan utility, and major financial institutions like the UN Development Program. So they had a pretty good idea of where to build new plants. All they needed was to pull together the loans and financing to build those power plants, which they were able to get from global financial institutions and private investors. But all of that upfront investment led by the government paved the way for that financing. In the beginning, it's expensive in terms of investments. But in the long run, it is uh, cheaper. And uh, even better still is that uh, it is on 24 hours a day. And it is ours. It's, it's a resource that is indigenous to, to us. 
So listening to what Nicholas is saying, it brings me back to countless stories that I know about different countries and what it takes to get big infrastructure done. It's not about one group moving forward. You need to move a lot of different groups. In this case, it was the utility, it was a bunch of investors, it was the government. They all had to sit down at a table together and move in the same direction. And that's just something we see time and time again. Something else that the government did was invest in Kenyan's geothermal expertise. What the government did, uh, it really sent us uh, Kenyans to institutions abroad, notably Iceland, Japan, Italy, and New Zealand. So over time, um, many Kenyans have been trained abroad. I know when I was in Iceland, our bus driver who was taking us around the island spoke extensively about the workforce training program that Nicholas is talking about, about how many people from other countries come to Iceland every year to get training on how to build and operate geothermal facilities. Right. And so it's sort of like all the pieces sort of came together. The exploration had been done. The workforce had been trained. The capital was finally there. And now... Kenya has 830 megawatts of geothermal capacity, which they're planning to double to 1,600 megawatts by 2030. But the country's total geothermal potential is an estimated 10 times what it is today. So there's a ton more that we can expect from Kenya's geothermal. This is really tremendous. Like, you've done a lot of research and talked to a lot of folks. What are the biggest takeaways that you think you have at this point? Like, what are the biggest things that you learned? Yeah. I would say, number one, the obvious one, the best places to do geothermal are in places with volcanic activity. That's just going to be the places where it's easiest to access that heat. Number two, geothermal is great, but it's difficult to build because of a combination of upfront costs and the uncertainty about drilling. And number three, I would say that government leadership seems to be pretty critical in sort of facilitating the funding and exploration and capacity building that you might need to build an industry. And maybe the fourth lesson is that investment in new technology may not pay off until just the right moment when a crisis requires some shift in the energy system and a new technology can fill that need, which is what seems to have happened in Kenya where a crisis precipitated government action to invest in geothermal. Absolutely. And in the middle of the current crisis that we're living in, We're seeing places like Kenya, places that have built out these technologies already, benefiting from them. The lights stay on. What I'll say is it'll be interesting to see in 5, 10, 15 years how different things look because of the responses that countries are making today to the energy crisis that's happening right now. So that brings us back to the climate crisis happening today and the question of whether geothermal could become a bigger player on that net zero sports scene that we talked about at the top of the show. We can see that geothermal is one of those few technologies that can actually provide 24-7 power. And so if you have the resource, it can be really valuable, but it takes a lot of upfront investment and you have to be able to tap into a geothermal hotspot in the first place. Right. And in my research, I came across some new technologies that could help us tap into those resources in a whole bunch of new places around the world. If you drill anywhere in the world, if you drill down, it gets really hot. And the further you go, the hotter it gets. This is Jamie Beard. She is the executive director of a nonprofit called Project Innerspace. And this is an organization that focuses on overcoming some of those challenges that geothermal has historically had. In many places, you you need to drill many kilometers down to to get heat that's sufficient to produce electricity, for instance. 
So, you know, five kilometers, eight kilometers, some of the some of the more lofty goals for geothermal, 10 kilometers, right? And at about 10 kilometers, you can achieve geo, you know, economical geothermal power production anywhere in the world. So what Jamie's talking about is just one way that we can access more geothermal resources. And what I've seen talked about most is a new wave of technology called enhanced geothermal systems or engineered geothermal systems, EGS for short. And EGS utilizes new techniques in drilling that were pioneered by, surprise, the oil and gas industry. And the first technique is called directional drilling. And this is also a technology that was developed um, and enabled the, the shale boom. And it's essentially the, the concept of being able to, to drill and turn. So you turn your drill bit and you can aim for specific places underground. Directional drilling allows you to reach heat that you might not otherwise be able to get to. Another technique from the oil and gas industry is hydraulic fracturing, a.k.a. fracking. Now, EGS is, is one of the geothermal concepts that's actually benefiting enormously from advances in hydraulic fracturing. And that's, again, that's a technology that was developed, um, you know, through the, through the shale boom um, for, for the production of, of natural gas. Um, and if you think about EGS trying to circulate a fluid through the subsurface, um, when you have existing fractures, it might be beneficial to try to widen them a little bit. Or, try, or, or to try to make more fractures in the rock so you can circulate more fluid. More fluid and more cracks means you can access more heat. Jamie points out that there are a whole bunch of new technologies like these that are being tested out in geothermal right now. Over the past couple of years, starting in about 2020, maybe at the end of 2019, a whole flourish of geothermal startups launched out of the oil and gas industry. See, and I find this really exciting. When you think about different industries who were doing one thing and they say, as we go to net zero, I have a tool that could help. Let's see how we can use it. Like, that's really exciting to me. How much do you think these technologies could, could solve some of the challenges that geothermal has had historically? So when I think about how far we've come with understanding what it takes to drill deep to find different resources, we've come a long way. And we've seen the impacts of this on the cost of things like natural gas getting cheaper. So when we talk about geothermal, we've learned a lot about how to drill deeper wells and to do it more cheaply. And we've learned a lot about how to find those hot spots. And so both of those things make the future of geothermal look a lot brighter than it maybe did a couple of decades ago. The relationship between industries that you were just talking about, I think it gets to one of the most interesting arguments that I heard Jamie make, which is that a bigger geothermal industry could help oil and gas workers transition to the net zero economy. I asked her what her pitch to oil and gas workers would be to move into geothermal. You're not arguing a change in their lives. They are using what they already know how to do. They are, you know, going to the field and drilling wells just like they do now. It's existing skill sets, even, even in terms of PhD level petroleum engineers. We're talking about a almost identical overlap with what they do now in oil and gas. 
Yeah, so this brings me back to when we actually went to Colorado, Daniel, and we were talking through what it takes to transition communities, communities where people have certain skill sets, and can they use their skill sets in the future? Geothermal is a really interesting example of a direct ability to transfer skills. You've got a skill, and you've used it for a while to tap into oil and gas, and now you're going to use it to tap into geothermal. So that transfer skills is kind of already happening. There are startups that are staffed by oil and gas folks testing out new geothermal technologies in the field. They're looking for new sources of underground heat. But in the meantime, there is an existing industry that still has a ton of potential to expand, like the one in Kenya. Right now, Nicholas Marita leads a training program at the Dedan Kamata University of Technology, where they're building up Kenya's expertise for the growing geothermal industry there. So much money is, was being spent sending Kenyans abroad for training. So we thought we could cut that cost. The amount of uh, money used in training, for example, a person in Iceland for six months is enough to train like three, four people uh, for two years. It's much cheaper. And uh, I think we have done that. We have trained quite a bit uh, the last couple of years. And um, uh, so my job is basically just uh, on capacity building. And Kenya is now starting to export that expertise to other countries like Djibouti and Rwanda, where they're beginning to develop their geothermal resources. Ana Mwangi says if your country has geothermal potential, you should get in touch. Come on, just contact us, you know. We'll just come and help you develop the resources. That's our show. And we're going to take a break until early next year, and we'll be back with more stories about how the energy transition is happening all over the world right now. The Big Switch is produced by Columbia University's SIPA Center on Global Energy Policy in partnership with PostScript Media. This episode not only starred me, but starred Daniel Waldorf, who's also a producer on the show. Also producing the show is Alexandria Herr. Story editing is by Ann Bailey. Mixing and scoring is by Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrank, and theme songs by Sean Marquand. A special thanks to our Columbia team, Jen Wu, Q Lee, Liz Smith, and Natalie Volk. Our managing producer is Cecily Meza-Martinez, and our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and this is The Big Switch. Happy holidays! Happy holidays!